0: and are anxious to begin our verse-by-verse discourse. However, the scope of work completed by Paul and his brothers is so magnificent that it is undoubtedly an unrealistic expectation to grasp it all without first engaging in some of the components that you've learned so far. That's true. But before we begin with a review, we feel the need to tease you with some of the things that you will learn this evening. Oh, Oh, Yeah.
1: Tonight Tonight. 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 You will see the continued expansion Of the kingdom of God In new areas While remaining faithful To the original vision Received in our chapter last week The brothers will continue their work In new areas of the Macedonian region While maintaining their usual custom Of beginning in the synagogue Bringing the gospel first to the Jew And then to the Greek The one transformed life of the Macedonian, and then his transformed family, will lead to the witness of the gospel spreading to the nation. That revelation alone is impactful and encouraging to our efforts to see the world transformed one life at a time. However, as you will see tonight, the work that takes place addresses more than just the salvific needs of the current generation. There are actually ancient and beastly powers that are being confronted by Jesus through his body on earth. Oh, yeah. These brave actions serve as an example in our time in many ways. Chief among the lessons that we will learn is the extent to which the same conviction of courage must reside in us as the body of Christ on earth in our conflicts with ancient and beastly powers. Yeah. Tonight! Tonight! Yeah, you will see that the team is not only traveling on ancient roads from city to city, they are also traveling on an ancient pathway, one that has a unique significance to this body and to the whole one association of churches. The best part is that while they travel along this ancient pathway, another kind of transformation is occurring in the people of ministry. One that will greatly expand the capability of their team. A son that was willing to be cut for the sake of the gospel and leave behind all attachment to his former worldly heritage, well, this son will in fact be reborn as a brother in our chapter tonight. Tonight!
2: Tonight! Tonight, 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 You will see what it looks like for a team to always remain in covenant, even while not in physical contact, yeah. furthermore, we will garner faith and conviction from the apostles who could not, would not, could not be put at a disadvantage in any situation because they were men who had and were not have-nots. Yeah. Yeah. The gospel will be fearlessly preached from the themes of the law, the prophets, and writings in biblically illiterate societies. This will occur even while fruitful ministry continues other areas under hostile threats of agitators who cannot seem to satiate themselves with the affairs of their own lives and feel the need to meddle with others. In the sovereignty of God, even the hostile agitators will serve His own purposes. The people of ministry will stand under the persecution while shielding their brothers who brought them the gospel message. So all in
3: all, the expansion of the kingdom is not going to slow down. Yeah. Back up or pause, even for a moment. Yeah. yeah. This team, as members of the body of Christ on earth, will continue to operate in the clothing with power that they had received. Amen. This will be supremely evident as the sovereignty of God continues to steer them into the areas that they need to be and into the interactions that they need to have. The circumstances that they will be led into... We'll put the power of God on display, and this brings us to our first slide of review, the expansion of Jesus' kingdom. Luke 24:46 46-49. Thus it is written, that the Christ should suffer and on the third day rise from the dead, and that repentance for the forgiveness of sins should be proclaimed in his name to all nations, beginning from Jerusalem. You are all witnesses of these things. And behold, I am sending the promise of my Father upon you. But stay in the city until you are clothed with power from on high. The Holy Spirit is the clothing with power. Yeah. Yeah. That would enable believers to bring the gospel to all nations. You see that in Acts eight. Luke was the record of all that Jesus began to do. Say do. do. And teach. Say teach. Teach. In other words, the actions of Jesus. The book of Acts is the record of all that Jesus began to do and teach through his body on earth as he fulfilled the Great Commission. Acts could be called the actions of Jesus through his body on earth as empowered by his spirit. The record of Acts is the continuation of Jesus' work through his body, beginning from Jerusalem and then to the nations of the world. In our chapter tonight, we're beginning to near the western edges of the known biblical world of their time. The clothing with power or infilling with the spirit of Jesus will be on full display as these Jewish men carry the gospel that begins in Jerusalem and ends in Jerusalem into dark, foreign areas of the world. These areas are not only dark and foreign on a human level. The spiritual powers and authorities over the region also have a history of hostility toward the plan and people of God. On that, let's take our next slide. You'll
0: see it's titled again. The expansion of Jesus' kingdom. This time from Matthew 28, beginning in verse 19. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. So again, the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of Jesus. This is how the words of Jesus can be fulfilled. Surely I am with you always to the very end of the age. Luke was the record of all that Jesus began to do and teach. In other words, the actions of Jesus. The book of Acts is the record of all that Jesus began to do and teach through his body on earth. As he, being Jesus, fulfilled the great commission. Acts could be called... The actions of Jesus through his body on earth as empowered by his spirit. Yeah. Saints, in a remarkable fashion, Jesus will be on display as being with his body on earth to the end of the age tonight. As this team continues to make disciples of all nations, it is proven time and time again that it is in fact actually Jesus in them that is fulfilling the Great Commission. Amen. The circumstances are not going to get more familiar or grow easier in any way. However, the man that is filled with the Spirit of Jesus is not alone oh. in any situation. Yeah, 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 yeah. And he is never at a disadvantage. That's right, that's right. The effects of the body of Christ on earth will be shown to be so powerful that their detractors will even go so far as to accuse them of turning the world Let's upside go. down. Hallelujah. The kingship of the resurrected Son of David will be recognized by nations ever further from the heartland of Israel as they learn to call on the God of Israel. Yeah. Amen. Our next
1: slide puts the major objective of the book of Acts very clearly. It's entitled, The Kingdom of God. In Acts chapter 1, in the very beginning, it says, Until the day when he was taken up after he had given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he had chosen, he presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. Our last chapter of Acts, in verse 28, uh, chapter 28 and verse 30, says he lived there two whole years at his own expense and welcomed all who came to him, proclaiming the kingdom of God. And teaching about the Lord Jesus Christ with all boldness and without hindrance. Church, as we told you in our overview, the subject matter of the book of Acts is the expansion of the kingdom of God through his body on earth. Tonight, you're going to see this expansion process reach new heights, and the body of Christ will be put on display as they exemplify the deeds and teachings of Jesus. The kingdom of God is going to directly challenge every pre-existing stronghold of sinful behaviors, pagan religions, and spiritual powers, showing Jesus to be the rightful king of all nations. Next, we'd like to summarize a few of the catalyst events. Those catalyst events have brought us all the way to our point tonight. Check out our next slide together. The death of Stephen was a catalyst event. Yeah. Oh, Acts 11:19 through 21 says, Now those who had been scattered by the persecution in connection with Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, telling the message only to Jews. Some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene, went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also. The Lord's hand was with them, and a great number of people believed and turned to the Lord. Mm -hmm. Next, the Jerusalem council was a catalyst event. Acts 15.23 says, With them they sent the following letter, The apostles and elders, your brothers, to the Gentile believers in Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. Greetings. Next, the vision of a Macedonian man That was a catalyst event. Acts 16.6. Paul and his companions traveled throughout the region of Phrygia and Galatia, having been kept by the Holy Spirit from preaching the word in the province of Asia. But the Spirit of Jesus would not allow them to. During the night, Paul had a vision of a man of Macedonia, standing and begging him, Come over to Macedonia and help us. After Paul had seen the vision we got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, concluding that God had called us to preach the gospel to them. Guys, it's important for you to grasp that the advancement of the gospel, it's never come through the well-engineered plans of men. The advancement of the gospel in these catalyst events have always come through the sovereign hand of Yahweh God.
2: In the case of Stephen's martyrdom, what looked like a catastrophe was in the end a great catalyst for the outward expansion of the gospel, reaching subgroupings of Jews and even Greekish people. Yeah. Tonight you will see that Stephen's testimony continues to influence the ongoing ministry of this theme and in many ways continues to be a catalyst for outward expansion yeah. long after the original scattering or sowing that occurred from Jerusalem. Mm. The council in Jerusalem was once again not a pre-planned event, listed on a five-year growth plan or chart, but it was instead the direct response to a problem that had arisen in Antioch. The response of the leaders in Jerusalem after hearing the testimonies of the Spirit at work among the Gentiles, and consulting the written word was to write a letter to Antioch, Syria, and Cilicia. These letters served to clarify the relationship of Gentiles to the God of Israel, and brought joy and strength into the believing community. Amen! At the beginning of Acts Acts 16, Paul and Barnabas desired to strengthen the communities that they had established earlier and finished the task of delivering the letter received from Jerusalem to the regions of Syria and Cilicia. The Jerusalem Council event served as a catalyst for the advancement of the gospel in that it created new teams and set Paul, Silas, and Timothy on a course that would eventually yield further revelation. The vision of the Macedonian man, as we saw last week, was far from being a contrived event by the will of man. The team tried to enter several other regions beforehand and was denied access by the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Jesus. The direction to preach in Macedonia will serve as a catalyst for events that we will read about tonight. Even to the extent of carrying Paul to Athens, while the rest of the theme stays on in the work within the borders of the Macedonian region. Yeah. This brings us to our next point of
3: review that you should remember from our overview session. Oh, come on. As you're looking at this slide, you'll remember that in our Daniel teaching, we laid out the four successive gently Gentile, not so gently, Gentile <laughs> beastly <laughs> empires that would rule over the biblical world prior to the return of Christ and the restoration of Israel. The first Gentile beastly empire was Babylon. The second was Medo-Persia, and the third was Greece. Greece was then predicted to be broken up into four smaller kingdoms represented by horns. Out of one of the horns would spring the fourth and final Gentile beastly empire. We don't have time to cover again in this format why it seems most likely that the fourth Gentile beastly empire will arise from the Seleucid kingdom. Say Seleucid. 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 You can, however, revisit the type notes and recordings on Daniel that are available in our app. This becomes highly intriguing when you examine the geographic associations of the areas of ministry in the record of Acts. In case we're losing you, this is going to become significant
0: in the actual ministry that is taking place. So tune in with this next slide. So you can see we have two red circles here. One in the center of the screen is Antioch, which is the capital and center of the Seleucid Empire, which is outlined in yellow here on the screen. To the left hand side, you'll see Macedonia in our second red circle. The thriving mixed community of believing Jews and Gentiles at Antioch has served as the hub of ministry for all of Barnabas and Paul's missionary efforts. Again, Antioch is in fact the capital city of the Seleucid Kingdom. Yeah. So in a very literal sense, these men have gone from Jerusalem to the belly of the beast, if you will, Come of on. the Antichrist Come and on. set up a thriving community that served as an outreach center to the rest of the world. Come on. Now as amazing as that is, that is not why we showed you the slide. Alexander, whom history refers to as Alexander the Great, was born in Macedonia. He is the Founder of the Third Beastly Gentile Empire. Our team in the text tonight is not only working within his former empire, but also the very region that the Third Beastly Gentile Empire was burst in. In the home of this Beastly Gentile Empire is where they are working, and they are proclaiming both the resurrection of Jesus and the resurrection of the dead. In doing so, turning men from the power of darkness to Messiah, King Jesus. The clash between the ancient malevolent spiritual powers in these regions and the kingdom of God, well, they're beginning to heat up drastically. In our narrative ahead in Acts, you will see that the pattern of opposition, persecution, and the salvation of the few will increase as the kingdom of God begins to seize territories that have been held by darkness for ages past. The work of the people of ministry since the time that they were spread out at the death of Stephen, has effectively been seeding the area with believing communities. The same area that the fourth beastly Gentile power will rise from. Now, none of these events were planned by men. However, they were planned by the greatest general of all time, King Jesus. So for our last point of review,
1: we're going to revisit another slide from our overview of the book of Acts. We have the intentional symmetry between Jews and Gentiles. So we have Peter's ministry on the left, Paul's ministry to the right. In Peter's ministry in Acts 3, he healed a man lame from birth. Paul does the same thing in Acts 14. He heals a man lame from birth. In Acts 5, Peter's shadow heals people. We have a miraculous event, the same in Paul's life, where pieces of cloth coming from him healed people in Acts 19. In Acts 5... Peter's success caused Jewish jealousy. In Acts 13, Paul's success caused Jewish jealousy. In Acts 8, Peter deals with with Simon, a sorcerer. In Acts 13, Paul deals with Bar-Jesus, a sorcerer. In Acts 9, Peter raised Dorcas to life. And in Acts 20, Paul raised Eutychus to life. The book of Acts displays a consistent symmetry of ministry in Jerusalem Judea, Samaria, and the regions beyond. This is precisely because it is, in fact, one kingdom with one spirit and one king. The message of the gospel is, and always will be, Israeli. Jesus, as king of his one kingdom, has and will continue to evidence his ministry in Gentile nations through the same miraculous signs or deeds and teachings. You will see tonight that the central narratives of the gospel in every way remain the same, no matter the location or people group receiving the message. You will, however, see a difference in that Jewish and biblically literate groups in proximity or relationship with Jews. They have a starting base of understanding that is an advantage in every way. When speaking to groups without that foundation, the message starts at the very beginning with the God who created the heaven, heavens and the earth. We will cover that subject more as we proceed in our text. For now, before we begin, we want to start in prayer. Uh Brother Nolan, will you pray for us? Yes. Yes. Father, we lift up your great name today, Father. We are excited about diving into your word. Father, would you come and open up our hearts, open up our minds today, anoint these names, Father, to share truths, Father, that we've never seen before. God, to live differently, to know you differently, to walk out of this room differently. Father, would you come and stir up our
0: hearts, stir up our minds, Father,
1: that we might know you mighty king in an intimate way. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. Pastor Wade is going to read the text for us.
4: When they had passed through Amphipolis uh, Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and proving that the Christ had to suffer and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God-fearing Greeks and not a few prominent women. But the Jews were jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters from the marketplace, formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. They rushed to Jason's house in search of Paul and Silas in order to bring them out to the crowd. But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials, shouting, These men who have caused trouble all over the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, One called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there, they went to the Jewish synagogue. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as Did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. When the Jews in Thessalonica learned that Paul was preaching the word of God at Berea, they went there too, agitating the crowds and stirring them up. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast, but Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas and Timothy to join him as soon as possible. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seemed to be advocating for foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting. You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenian and all the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. Now what you worship is something unknown. I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives life, gives all men life and breath and everything else. (laughs) From one man he made every nation of men, that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the time set for them, and the exact places where they should live. God did this so that men would seek him, and perhaps reach out for him, and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live, and move, and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold, or silver, or stone. An image made by man's design and skill. In the past God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered. But others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Aeropagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Wow! 34 verses.
1: When you guys read chapter 17, did you notice how busy it was? Yeah. The spirit of Jesus through the body of Jesus on the earth has been busy in these 34 verses. We're going to help you guys from the very onset of our study together. With maps and details and all kinds of things that are going to put this chapter in perspective. Yeah. So that being said, chapter 17, verses 1 through 2, please, Lintonius.
5: When they had passed through Amphipolis and Avalonia, Great. they came to Thessalonica, where where there was a Jewish synagogue. As his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and there on three on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the scriptures. Okay, so we're going to begin with our map,
1: so that we can gain some scope together of the areas being discussed in these verses. Do you guys see the map up there? I want to direct you to the northwest quadrant of that map. Do you see the red line that goes horizontally across? That is going to be very important. If you look at the bottom left side of the screen you can see that that red line signifies the route of the Via Ignatia the Ignatian Way guys last session we were in the city of Philippi after visiting Lydia and the brothers the team is headed toward Thessalonica (laughs) along a route known as the Ignatian Way this way is an ancient route that is roughly 700 miles long 700 miles, and it winds from the Bosphorus Strait all the way to Dirachium or present-day Albania, on the Adriatic Sea. You guys are looking at that red line. That's the way that we're speaking of. This is relevant because it forms the land route between the Middle East and the peninsula of the Balkans. It served as the route for armies at various times. That would change the world as we know it today. Among our brothers in the one association churches, we have received revelation about our king forming a similar connection (laughs) along many of these same areas. But this time, instead of bringing armies of Rome into Turkey and the rest of the Middle East, it will serve to bring armies of the kingdom of God straight into the Middle East and eventually all the way back to Jerusalem.
2: So, reading the chapter tonight in verse 1, you may have noticed that Paul did not stop at Amphipolis or Apollonia. We can say for sure why he did not stop at those cities, but a likely contributing factor may have been his continued practice of Torah of servants. Luke makes it clear that they did stop in Thessalonica where there was a Jewish synagogue, possibly in contrast to the previous two cities. Furthermore, Luke goes on to say, as was his custom, reminding you that Paul's consistent practice was to observe the Sabbath and to do so alongside his Jewish brothers. Subsequent to his arrival, Paul then spent a total of three Sabbaths reasoning there. In our modern and Christianized worldview, It is important that we engage with the habits and daily life of biblical authors who were practicing Jews and not modern Gentile believers. Let's take a look at a slide that will give us some additional insight into Thessalonica and what the team's aim in reaching it may have been. Alright,
3: this Thessalonica from the Pulpit Commentary. It took the name of Thessalonica under the Macedonian kings. It continued to grow in importance under the Romans and was the most populous city of the whole of Macedonia. Mm -hmm. It was the capital of Macedonia Secunda under the division of Aemilius Paulus. But from its situation and great commercial importance, it was virtually the capital of Greece, Macedonia, and Illyrica. Wow. Its trade attracted a great colony of Jews from before the time of St. Paul. And through the Roman and Greek and Turkish empires down to the present day, when one half of the population is said to be of Israelitish race. Where was a synagogue? It is, need, it is needless to point out the exact agreement of this brief statement with the historical fact as pointed out above. There is said to have been 22 Jewish synagogues at Thessalonica after the expulsion of the Jews from Spain in the 15th century. And the number at the present time is stated to be 36. The existence of a synagogue at this time was the reason of St. Paul's visit and sojourn there. So clearly, Thessalonica is an important city to the region of Macedonia, and it fits as a clear next step in the vision to preach the word in this area. Additionally, the large Jewish presence is a part of Paul's conviction to share the good news about Jesus' resurrection, And the resurrection in Jesus, first to the Jew, and then to the Gentile. This city would further the exposure of the gospel in many ways. While many elements of the city make it attractive as a next step, it's important to remember that they have left Philippi in part because in the sovereignty of God, they are no longer welcome there by the magistrates. It's always a beautiful thing to see how Adonai works through all things to position his people. As we prepare for this next slide on Thessalonica
0: from the EBC, to re-emphasize what Peyton said. They didn't elect to leave Philippi. They were beaten and told that they needed to leave. So as a large city of perhaps 200,000 and one that dominated Macedonian government and commerce, Thessalonica naturally attracted diverse groups of people, including a substantial Jewish contingent. Paul seems to have viewed it as a strategic center for the spread of the gospel through the Balkan Peninsula. Wow. Therefore, Paul, Silas, though doubtless in some pain from the recent beating and in time in the stocks, pushed on resolutely to travel Amen. the 100 miles from Philippi to Thessalonica. Wow. Wow. The conviction and resolve of these men continues to impress. Oh, yeah. Yes. yes. That's right. While still bearing the marks of their ministry in the last city, they traveled 100 miles to reach where they believed that Adonai had sent them next. Namely, the principal commerce city of Macedonia, in accordance with the vision that they had already received, come and help us of a Macedonian man. Yeah, they're still being faithful to that Macedonian vision. Look on a last note before
1: we examine Paul's interactions in the synagogue. Let's take a look at how the Church of Philippi helped the brothers in this endeavor to reach Thessalonica. Remember we were in Philippi last week? Yeah. So Thessalonica from the IVP Bible Background Commentary. Thessalonica was an important city in this period, Macedonia's largest port, capital of its old second district, and now residence of the provincial governor. Thessalonica's non-Greek religious importations Included not only Judaism, but the Egyptian cult of Serapis and Isis. Paul had to be there long enough to receive support from Philippi, and you can read about that in Philippians four fifteen through sixteen. About a hundred miles away, until then, his occupation, which would allow him to set up shop in the agora, must have supported him. So clearly. There is a multiplicity of reasons that the brothers traveled to Thessalonica, not the least of which being that it is a major city within the region of Macedonia that they had received a vision from God about. It is beautiful to note that the account of Philippians 4 lets us know that the believers in Philippi sacrificed to support the brothers in the work as they went on. In fact, let's read that together. Philippians 4 14 through 16, yet it was kind of you to share my trouble. And you, Philippians, yourselves know that in the beginning of the gospel, when I left Macedonia, no church entered into partnership with me in giving and receiving, except you only. Even in Thessalonica, you sent me help for my needs once and again. The consistent testimony in the book of Acts is that the believers shared what they had with one another in their local community. Yeah. We read about that in Acts 2, 3, and 4 a bunch. Furthermore, between local communities, they sacrificially gave to support one another. Antioch had taken up an offering to help Jerusalem during a famine. We read about that in Acts 11 and 12. Then in Acts 15, Jerusalem sent two outstanding men in addition to the letter, in an effort to aid the believing community in any way possible as they confronted the challenges that were posed to them. Then, Antioch sent not just Paul, but Paul and Silas to continue the mission of delivering the letter from Jerusalem and expanding into brand new territories. This truly is an example of what it should look like to be one church That is in many localities. Now as we enter the ministry in Thessalonica, you guys remember that it was the sacrifice of the Philippians that made this ministry possible. Uh Uh We're going to get a running start. We're going to reread verse 2, and
5: we're going to go all the way through verse
1: 4.
4: As
5: his custom was, Paul went into the synagogue, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with with them from the Scriptures, Mm. explaining and proving That the Christ had suffered, had to suffer, and rise from the dead. This Jesus I am proclaiming to you is the Christ, he said. Some of the Jews were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a large number of God fearing Greeks and not
2: a few prominent women. (laughs) Come on, so immediately upon his arrival, and probably still bruised, Paul is discoursing with his Jewish brothers from the scripture regarding the nature of the Messiah's death and resurrection. The reliance of the scripture is a theme in the book of Acts that we would all do well to notice, and even more importantly, to emulate. Hey, yeah. In the coming verses, you will see that even when Paul is in biblically illiterate societies, every statement that he makes is firmly rooted in the themes of the Torah, the Nibiim, and the Ketuvim. Let's take a look at a slide on the normal format for reasoning through a new idea when in a synagogue. This line is from the Jewish New Testament commentary entitled he reasoned with them through scriptures. That is, he gave them their or literally lectured to them. Adarash or adarashah is literally a searching. The word denotes a sermon, exegesis, exposition, or homiletical interpretation of a text. The word Midrash is related. The normal form of the the rash in the midrashic period was first an introduction consisting of a biblical verse with illustrations and parables leading up to second the particular text to be explained now expanded by stories allegories and association with other texts then third a conclusion consisting of exhortations and words of comfort and ending with the kaddish prayer get it that Shaul, frequently used Talmudic and Midrashic thought patterns, is illustrated by those references. Mm-hmm. So, in many of Paul's epistles, it is plainly evident that he's quoting from the Torah, the Nevi'im, and the Ketuvim with frequency, as he supports any practice in the church. Oh, yeah. When you're envisioning the verses in our text tonight, you should imagine fervent discussions about Scripture itself, and not like <coughs> mere discussions based on logic or ideology yeah. this pattern is demonstrated by Jesus in Luke twenty-four twenty-seven, as well as many other passages and Paul is continuing in that same pattern so in our own reasoning the scripture itself must at all times be upheld as the foremost authority Amen. this is it this is true in our presentation of the gospel as well as in our own decision-making apparatus Amen. before we continue to the next verses it is worth taking a moment to consider those who were won over by engaging with the Scriptures. Come on. Yeah. Let's take our next slide.
3: Let's talk about those who believed in Thessalonica. Oh, the passage says some Jews or certain Jews believed. A large number or a great multitude of Greeks and not a few prominent women. Oh, yeah. yeah. We're about to progress in our verses and in many ways see terrible conduct on the part of many of the Jews in Thessalonica. However, the majority response was not universally true. Amen. Some of the Jews did believe. Amen. Now, how many some is, is unclear. <laughs> but we know that a community grew and existed here for Paul, Silas, and Timothy to write to, right? Yeah. In addition to the Jews who believed, a large number of God-fearing Greeks and prominent women believed. This city will grow into another thriving community alongside Philippi, making up a network of local communities that are one church. Come on. Come on. Let's take verse 5. But the Jews were
5: jealous, so they rounded up some bad characters whoa, whoa. from the marketplace, wow. formed a mob, and started a riot in the city. <laughs> they rushed to Jason's house in search of
0: Paul and Silas in order to bring them out of the crowd. <clears throat> they went to the bad character store and bought a few to help out. <laughs> yeah. Look, once again, it's worth pointing out that the Jews does not mean all the Jews. Right. right. Yeah. In this case, it seems to mean the majority of the Jewish community. As we noted earlier, there was a minority of some Jews as well as many Gentiles in Thessalonica that did believe and were of noble character. Yeah. So let's take a quick passage. From 1 Thessalonians and then one from 2 Thessalonians that comment on the believing community at Thessalonica. 1 Thessalonians 1
1: 6 through 10. Paul writing to the Thessalonians, And you became imitators of us and of the Lord, for you received the word in much affliction with the joy of the Holy Spirit, so that you became an example to all the believers in Macedonia and in Achaia. For not only has the word of the Lord sounded forth from you in Macedonia and Achaia, but your faith in God has gone forth everywhere so that we need not say anything. For they themselves report concerning us the kind of reception we had among you and how you turned to God from idols to serve the living and true God. Did you catch that? that. Turn to God from idols. (laughs) (laughs) Verse 10 And to wait for his son from heaven Whom he raised from the dead Jesus who delivers us from the wrath to come It is often those that receive the word Under the greatest of affliction That have the most outstanding character The believers in Thessalonica Turned to God And continued in the faith And they became a model To all of Macedonia and Achaia Let's continue to our next passage in 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, brothers, pray for us that the word of the Lord may speed ahead and be honored as happened among you. Clearly, a portion of the population honored the word of the Lord in Thessalonica in a way that Paul, Silas, and Timothy fondly remembered. They even go on to request their prayer that others would honor the word in the same way that they did. In your own time, guys, read the letters to the Thessalonians. You're going to find rich commendations and insight into the eschatological plan of God. That, however, is not within our purview tonight. So let's keep moving in verse 6.
5: But when they did not find them, they dragged Jason and some other brothers before the city officials. These men who have caused trouble over the the world have now come here, and Jason has welcomed them into his house. They are all defying Caesar's decrees, saying that there is another king, one called Jesus. When they heard this, the crowd and the city officials were thrown into turmoil. Then they put Jason and the others on bail and let them go.
2: So to be clear, there is far more present in these verses than we have time to cover, but that is your own that is what your own personal time is for. That's true. To begin with our engagement, it is not entirely certain who Jason is. He may be a kinsman of Paul, listening to Romans 16 21, but in any case, he and some of the brothers are becoming participators in the same <coughs> kind of sufferings that Christ and the apostles had experienced. So when the
3: disbelieving population went looking for Paul and Silas, they came up empty-handed. They took these men because they had been closely associated with Paul and Silas by the means of hospitality and participation in the Word. The symmetry of the gospel pattern of signs or deeds and teachings of Christ, followed by persecution, does not just mark the apostles but also all the people of ministry, right? right. Listen to 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 4. Therefore, we ourselves boast about you in the churches of God for your steadfastness and faith in all your persecutions and in the afflictions that you are enduring. Both at the onset of ministry here in our verses and in the years to come, the people of ministry in Thessalonica set an example in what it looks like to endure afflictions for the sake of Christ. Okay, yeah. So let's start to take a look at the
0: accusations that were leveled against them because they're great, frankly. They are. Yeah. Yeah. You can see we titled the slide, Guilty as Charged. Yeah. So in Acts 17, verse 6 in the ESV, when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, shouting, shouting, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And then in verse 7, And Jason received them, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying that there is another king, Jesus. Look, the beauty of these demonically motivated statements could not be understated, as strange as that sounds. The statement that they have turned the world upside down could not be any higher praise. Yeah. Yeah. And they definitely are proclaiming that there is another king, King Jesus, yeah. who is the Messiah. Yeah. The beauty of the scenario gets even better when you remember that the statement is not applied to the apostles at all. Wow. These men, and they all, is in reference to the people of ministry and thus oh Our hope is that every man in this room by the end of your life could be considered Guilty as charged yeah. Yeah. in yeah. regard to these accusations. That's right. This evening, we've elected not to emphasize the reasons why we could not be charged with these accusations. Yeah, I want to tell you plainly, this is not because we desire to spare you or that we were just moved with compassion. It is simply because we, right. meaning us, yeah. couldn't be found guilty of these accusations like these men either. But instead of wallowing in our mistakes or missed opportunities, how about we all, as the people of ministry, focus on living a life so loud in our action and teaching that we could be considered guilty as well. Brother Linton, let's
4: keep moving in the text. As soon as it was night, the brothers sent
5: Paul and Silas away to Berea. On arriving there,
1: they went to the Jewish synagogue. So let's take a look at our map again and zero in on the movement of our team. So what we've seen so far from last week, we've moved from Philippi to Amphipolis in our chapter tonight, Apollonia, Thessalonica, and now circled Berea. Mm. You see how they're moving along the Ignatian way, ministering. Now, before we get too carried away in the events in Berea, you should take note that it is the brothers from Thessalonica who refused to give the team up to the authorities, and then whisk them away by night to Berea. The believers in Thessalonica would rather be wrongfully imprisoned and fined than allow harm to come to the team who brought the gospel to them.
2: Well, that's incredible.
1: This is the people of ministry participating in the sufferings of Christ for the sake of the other members of his body on earth And doing so, so that the gospel can go forward to their neighbors. (laughs) As we turn our attention to the events in Berea, it is clear that in every city, Paul continues with his usual custom of beginning in the synagogue among his Jewish brothers. Let's go to verse 11, and we're going to
5: see the results of this interaction. Now the Bereans were of more noble character than the Thessalonians, for they received the message with great eagerness, and examined the scriptures every day to see if what Paul said was true. Many of the Jews believed, as did also a number of prominent Greek women and many Greek men. So we've already noted that when Luke
1: refers to the Thessalonians, he's speaking of the majority of Jews who did not believe in that city. There were, however, faithful brothers from Thessalonica Who did believe, praise God, and nobly received the word, going so far as to protect the team who brought them the gospel. Having said that, Luke's description of the Jews at Berea, come on now, it's profoundly beautiful. It's also unique in the record of Acts. There are many observations that one could make about the interactions in Berea, but for now... We're going to narrow it down to just three observations. Let's take our next slide. Let's take it. Those who
2: believed in Berea. Many of the Jews believed. A number of prominent Greek women, and also many Greek men. So the success in Berea is incredible. And it's quite possibly the best reception of the gospel that we have recorded in the missionary journeys of Acts. Many of the Jews a number of prominent Greek women and men all believed the word in Berea. It is necessary that we hold this kind of supernatural testimonies in our hearts and minds. Facing rejection in your first, second, third, or fourth attempt to accomplish God's will at no point in time should diminish your hope of supernatural change in the next attempt. This is of particular value when considering Adonai's chosen people, Israel, who are often initially disobedient, but will ultimately become obedient. The Jews in Berea are a shining example of what is to come as Adonai continues to refine and transform his nation.
3: The second observation that we're going to make, before continuing in uh, in this unique description of what made the Bereans noble in their character, verse 11 says, For they received the message with great eagerness and examined the scriptures every day. Great eagerness or readiness of mind, as some translations say, is certainly of great value. When combined with the diligence to personally search and apply the scripture, it's a winning combination for all believers. That's right. We're going to take a moment to visit Luke's first scroll and examine the way that this concept was addressed by Jesus. This is Luke 8, verse 15. But the seed on good soil stands for those with a noble and good heart who hear the word. Say, hear the word. Hear the word. Retain it. Say, retain it. Retain Retain it. it. And by persevering, say, persevering. Perseverance Perseverance. Produce a crop. Produce a crop. The honest truth is that the four soils exist in all of our hearts all of the time. It is an active choice to be a noble stock by being eager to not only hear the word, but to retain it, and then to persevere in the examination of the truth until it produces a crop in your very actions. Now the believing community at Berea is a bright example of this process, and you will see in verse 14 that their eagerness, diligence to examine the scriptures, and belief culminate in what? right action. As their brothers in Thessalonica did before them, the brothers from Berea will once again protect the team that brought them the gospel by traveling with Paul as far as Athens. Come on. While we are tempted to go into a long scripture chain on the subject <laughs> of being eager to receive the word, yeah. diligent in examining it, and persevering until completing the process <laughs> oh, of your actions, yeah. the reality is that we don't just have time for that. Oh man. And we want to give you the opportunity to study it out in your own homes. Oh, yeah. So instead. We're going to just suggest that you read 2 Corinthians 8 okay. and Matthew 13 in your own time. Are you ready for the third yes. and
0: final observation?
3: Yes. Yeah. Our third
0: and final observation is that in Acts 20, verses 3 through 4, believing Thessalonians and Bereans are said to be personally accompanying Paul as he makes his way through the churches back to Jerusalem. Wow. wow. Our point in sharing that with you is that while these two believing communities are often pitted against one another in the thoughts of men, they are in fact one in spirit, one in body, and in the one kingdom of God together. They are one church who just happened to meet in different locations and had different external pressures on them from unbelievers. Now, speaking of external pressures from unbelievers, oh, let's go to our next verse. Yeah, that's right. When the Jews in Thessalonica
5: learned that Paul was preaching the word of God in Berea, they went there too, Yeah. yeah. agitating the crowds and stirring them up. Well, <laughs> with repetition,
1: we have pointed out to you in each successive chapter that the term the Jews does not refer to all Jews. Right. So, we're not going to retread that ground. Yeah. But on a historical level, what is happening here is reminiscent of the events in Acts 14:19, where men traveled from Pisidian Antioch and Iconium to stir up crowds in Lystra, resulting in the stoning of Paul. It is unfortunate, but nevertheless a universal truth in any culture that those who harden their hearts to the will of God are never satisfied with their own destruction they want to bring some people with them wow they often feel the need to spread their spiritual disease to as many people as possible in the name of trying to help them or spare them the pain that they experienced while exposed to the genuine gospel these agitators in our text tonight actually left their homes They left their businesses and their own affairs to journey to another city 100 miles away, further just to stir up trouble. We have personally seen the same kind of demonically motivated determination in men who once considered themselves blessed to be exposed to the gospel, but then later became obstinate because they loved their sin. We have a lot to cover still ahead of us, but we couldn't resist taking at least a couple of passages on this subject. Oh, come on. Romans chapter 1, verse 28. Furthermore, just as they did not think it worthwhile to retain the knowledge of God, not to retain the knowledge of God, so God gave them over to a depraved mind so that they do what ought not be done. Ah. They have become filled with every kind of wickedness, evil, greed, and depravity. They are full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, and malice. They are gossips, slanderers, God-haters, insolent, arrogant, and boastful. They invent ways of doing evil. They disobey their parents. They have no understanding, no fidelity, no love, no mercy. Although they know God's righteous decrees, wow. wow. that those who do such things deserve death, they not only continue to do these very things, but wow. also approve of those who practice them. What an important verse to come face to face with. Those who are presented with the knowledge of God, but refuse not to listen to it, refuse to retain that knowledge. These are the people that become obstinate in their flesh. They're often the worst kind of enemies to have. This is because they are never content with only their own immorality. They approve of others who practice the same types of immorality. In this community, guys, we must strengthen our resolve to clearly stand for truth in every situation, especially as the days grow darker. We cannot allow sympathy or fear to cause us to tolerate the passing of this kind of spiritual disease among us. Paul would go on to warn Titus about these kinds of men, and to give him instructions as to how we should deal with them.
2: Yeah, from Titus 3, starting in verse 9, this is Paul's warning to Titus. But avoid foolish controversies, genealogies, dissensions, and quarrels about the law, for they are unprofitable and worthless. Mm. As for a person who stirs up division after warning him once and then twice, have nothing more to do with it. Knowing that such a person is warped and sinful, he is self-condemned. Our modern and slanted viewpoint of the gospel often causes us to fail in the application of these kinds of passages because we (coughs) deem the word of God to be too harsh in our circumstances. The word clearly demands that we make lines of distinction that are not compromised. This allows the best opportunity for men to see their error and come to saving repentance. Amen. If we had more time, we would read to you 2 Peter 2, 14 through 21, which describes the condition of men who have received the truth as well as what their ultimate outcome will be. We, however, don't have more time. So let's get back to our text and examine beautiful the beautiful process that has been at work behind the scenes since the beginning of Acts 16. Oh, yeah. This is gonna be good. Yeah. The brothers immediately
5: be Sent Paul to the coast. But Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. The men who escorted Paul brought him to Athens and then left with instructions for Silas
3: and Timothy to join
5: him as
3: soon as possible. Okay, so before we cover the geography and the extraordinary events ahead of us, we have to comment on who just appeared. What's yes. his name? Timothy. 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 Thank you. Many have spent hours speculating as to Timothy's role during the events that have just taken place. What is clear is that a process has taken place inside of Timothy during this time. Take a look at this slide with us. The development of Timothy. Mm. So in Acts 16, 1-3 says he came to Derbe and then to Lystra, where a disciple named Timothy lived.
1: Where a what? Disciple.
3: A disciple. Disciple. Paul wanted to take him along on the journey, so he circumcised him. Let's talk about what happened after that. They experienced the steering of Jesus' spirit, the vision of the Macedonian man, the events of Philippi, like Lydia, the slave girl, the flogging, and finding the Macedonian man. Come on. Then they went to Thessalonica, where he saw the presentation of the word and persecution of the people in ministry, and then to Berea, where there was great reception of the word. Yeah. Now we want you to look at Acts 17, verse 14. The brothers immediately sent Paul to the coast. Wait, the what? The brothers. brothers. But Silas and Timothy stayed at Berea. So Timothy joined in chapter 16 as a disciple. disciple. And then is not mentioned again until he is presented as a fully capable brother and partner in the work alongside Silas. This is a vivid display of the process of discipleship. Men... Who are taken in like sons, included in your life, transparently seeing the process of ministry, and then being elevated as equal brothers. Timothy was advantaged by each of the events that occurred between Acts 16 and Acts 17, verse 14. Including the times that the team was wrong about where they should be and had to be redirected by the Holy Spirit or the Spirit of Jesus. All of this has culminated in a man that is fit for ministry and is standing side by side with Silas while in the face of opposition.
0: Look, these things are fun, and we're teaching and sharing with you as well as everyone else that's listening. There's like five of you that grasped how good that was, and it's because you've labored to make sons into equal brothers. For the rest of you who are thinking about it theoretically, this is gold. You will see in our coming chapters that the brotherhood of Timothy in many ways... Well, it's going to expand the capabilities of this team as they will be able to rotate, supporting one another and completing the work in multiple areas. Although they are temporarily physically separated, they remain in connection and on task in the work. Silas and Timothy, they will finish establishing the believing community in Macedonia, which, remember, is the birthplace of the third beastly Gentile empire. They will do this while Paul travels further on into the region of Achaia. This will bring Paul into direct conflict with more ancient malevolent powers. Let's pick up in 16. While Paul was waiting for them
5: in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. All right.
1: Let's take a look at our map again as we see Paul's route before we get to where everybody's been wanting to get to. Everybody loves Paul in Athens. So let's take a look. At where Paul is, while the brothers stay in Berea, Paul goes on to Athens, and this is where he begins his ministry. Since landing in Philippi, the team has been traveling along or near the Ignatian Way. Mm -hmm. Athens, however, is some distance to the south and is within the region known as Achaia. So let's take our next slide and start to gather some background on Athens where Paul is. (coughs) Check out this next slide with us. The glory of Greece in the 5th and 4th centuries B.C. was fading in Paul's day, and even Athens, the proud center of Hellenism, proud. was past its bloom. Even so, it was still a vital cultural center with a world-famous university. The a glorified college town. Many of its famous buildings were built during the days of its leader, Pericles, Beautiful as were the architecture and art forms, Paul could not enjoy them because he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. The art of Athens was a reflection of its worship. The intellectual capital of the world was producing idolatry. We will begin to unpack Paul's inability to enjoy the art of Athens, but we'll do it later. For now, just take note that this city served as the university center for the entire region. In other words, Athens is that college campus environment of the area. Let's take our next slide on Athens
2: and discover some more. This is background on Athens, part two. Intellectually and culturally, Athens retained its superiority for centuries, with such philosophers as Socrates, Plato. Aristotle, Epicurus, and Zeno, living and teaching there. In 338 B.C., Philip II of Macedonia conquered Athens, but the conquest only served to spread Athenian culture and learning into Asia and Egypt through his son, Alexander the Great. The Romans conquered Athens in 146 B.C. They were lovers of everything Greek, and under their rule, Athens continued as the intellectual and cultural center of the world. Oh wow! Its temples and its statuary were related to the worship of the Greek pantheon, and its culture was pagan, so Paul, with his Jewish abhorrence of idolatry, yeah. <laughs> could not but find the culture of Athens spiritually repulsive. Yep. Yeah. Most Western Bible teachers are enthused at the opportunity to cover the history of Athens because of its relationship to our modern society. Yeah. There
1: you go. Well, we on the other hand do not share the appreciation for Greek culture. Yeah. (laughs) The reason that we are taking the time to bring you through this history lesson is so that you understand the spiritual background of the city. Athens rose to international fame because of its relationship to the Macedonian kings, particularly Alexander the Great, who is the founder of the third beastly Gentile empire. When you picture Athens, you need to picture an idolatrous university city, proud of its renown as the intellectual and cultural center of the world, with a
3: dark and beastly spiritual power over the entire city. Yeah, so now let's address why Paul could not enjoy the art of Athens (laughs) says he was greatly distressed now this Greek word is 3947 peroxune. it means to sharpen incite, irritate to sharpen the mind, temper or courage of someone to incite or to impel indignation, synonyms like to provoke to wrath or anger or provoke to jealousy so in Laman's turn Paul was brought to the edge or was pushed too far yeah. by the rampant and abhorrent idolatry in Athens. In our previous session, we have already discussed how Adonai used Paul's annoyance or anger with the demonic presence in the slave girl to place him perfectly in his will. In this case, you will once again see that rightly reflecting Yahweh's emotions about a subject will place Paul directly in the will of God. Come on. Yeah. Wow. Now we're going to take two passages before we continue which will help us understand Adonai's character and thoughts about the situation. So, your first passage, of course, comes from the wall. This
0: is Deuteronomy 6, beginning in verse 13. It is the Lord your God you shall fear, Him you shall serve, and by His name you shall swear. You shall not go after other gods, the gods of the peoples who are around you. For the Lord your God is in your midst, is a jealous God. Yeah. Lest the anger of the Lord your God be kindled against you and he destroy you from off the face of the earth. Adonai hates idolatry. Clearly, this passage paints that picture. He hates idolatry because he is the only and true God who deserves the worship of the nations. But moreover, idolatry is the enslavement to the corrupt spiritual powers of this world that masquerade as true gods. With his people Israel, he made it clear from the beginning that they were to serve and worship him alone. That's right. This was to produce life in them and keep them free of spiritual slavery after he had physically brought them out of Egypt. Aww. We will discuss this further in our narrative. But the whole earth is God's creation and inheritance. And he is concerned with the spiritual condition of slavery that the nations of the world live in. And he wants them to be free. So let's take one more from the prophets and then continue. All right, this is Isaiah 59, 14 through 17. And as you're listening to
1: this, you ought to have your spirit being provoked just like Paul had his spirit being come on, provoked. Man,
4: come,
0: on, come on,
1: Justice is turned back, and righteousness stands far away. For truth has stumbled in the public squares, and uprightness cannot enter. Truth is lacking. And he who departs from evil make him, makes himself a prey. The Lord saw it, and it displeased him yeah. that there was no justice. He saw that there was no man and wondered that there was no one to intercede. Oh, come on! Then his own arm brought oh, yeah. him salvation, yeah. and his righteousness upheld him. Yeah. He put on righteousness as a breastplate Ooh. and a helmet of salvation on his head. He put on garments of vengeance for clothing and wrapped himself in seal as a cloak. You see, Adonai has say, seen fit to send his son into the world precisely because of the desperate need that his people Israel have for justice, an intercessor, and salvation. If Israel is in desperate need of these things, well, then how much more so the rest of the world that, has been, brought, but that has been without his word? Yeah, that's right. Paul, as the body of Christ on earth and a representative of the Jewish Messiah, has been divinely brought to this place to be the appearance of Yahweh's salvation. It is Jesus, through the medium of his spirit inside of Paul that has appeared to bring freedom from slavery in Athens. And what you're seeing is the spirit of Jesus inside Paul in contention with the powers of darkness in Athens. Come on. Guys, we're going to get to Paul's coming discourse very soon. A discourse that happens thematically to center around creation, fall, redemption, and restoration. But you guys are going to see that Paul's background as a diaspora Jew is actually going to aid him in that he is familiar with Greco-Roman culture and teaching. However, Paul is not enjoying his tour of Athens. <laughs> That's true simply because Adonai is not enjoying the current condition of spiritual slavery that was present in Athens Come on, either. Come on, on a, on a very personal level, this makes us cringe when we consider the idolatry that remains all around us under different names that we are not moved by in the very slightest. Yeah. Wow, so true. We should all endeavor to have our own emotions, our own thoughts and convictions transformed by the retention of the Word of God yeah. so that they actually reflect Adonai in the
5: same way that we're reading that Paul's did tonight. Verse 17. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there.
2: So you know, Paul's custom is Torah of servants, synagogue attendance, and going first to the Jew and then to the Gentile. These habits do not bend or shift in any city that he is in. Once again, you will see that Adonai uses Paul's usual customs and habits to place him in the center of his will. Amen. You may have noticed that Paul was not confined to speaking in the synagogue alone in this verse. Yeah. So let's talk about the open area known as the Agora. Yeah. That is a picture, this is a modern day picture of the area that the Agora once was set up and that Paul would have been teaching in. Let's take our next slide and pick up some of the setting that Paul is standing in.
3: Alright, the Agora in Athens. Lying right beneath the northern slope of the Acropolis is the ancient Athenian Agora. Walking through the Agora takes the visitor back through the place where Athens' mighty heart once beat. Literally meaning marketplace, the Agora was the economic center where the wealth, reach, and influence of classical Athens was visible by the wide range of goods... Shipped in from the nearby ports of Piraeus, which ranged from wheat produced on the shores of the Black Sea to precious dyes from the Levant. But what marked the Agora with everlasting glory was the other commodity traded and peddled daily. Ideas. Hmm. The Agora was the meeting grounds and hangout spot for ancient Athenians, where members of elected democracy assembled to discuss affairs of state. Noblemen came to conduct business. Ordinary citizens got together to meet up with friends and watch performers, and where the famed philosophers doused their listeners with wisdom or rubbish. <laughs> so once again, when envisioning the setting, you need to picture an idolatrous Ivy League school with a hangout area in which students, professors, as well as the occasional politi- politician may be found talking and professing their ideology. Wow. Remember, this city was proud of its renown as the intellectual and cultural center of the world and was ruled by a dark and beastly spiritual power. Yeah. <laughs> Unfortunately, much of the average Christian's life is spent trying to fit in with these idolatrous culture around them or trying to avoid it altogether. Yeah. Paul demonstrably does neither. Come on, right. He's found in the most public areas of places, engaging with whomever, whomever wants to hear what he has to say yeah. about the kingdom of God. Amen. Amen. This is an example of what it looks like for the believer to actively clash with Come the on. powers of darkness and advance the kingdom of God. Yes. Come on. Earlier in Thessalonica, we showed you that what it looked like for Paul to reason with men about the gospel of Christ... Resurrected and our future resurrection. Paul was discoursing from the Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim when he reasoned with them. Yeah. Take note of that. You will see in the coming verses that even when Paul is speaking biblically to biblically illiterate groups of people, everything that he shares is firmly rooted in the themes of the Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim. Amen. Let's get our
5: 18th verse. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to dispute with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating for gods. <laughs> they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about
0: Jesus and the resurrection. Look, Luke's insight into the minds of the men in the conversation, let us know that once again, the central issue at hand is about Jesus and the resurrection. Yeah. We've been reminding you about the symmetry of the early chapters in Acts, with the later chapters for a reason. That's right. It's because the message has never changed, and it is the expansion of the one church and the one kingdom of God, beginning at Jerusalem.
3: Yeah.
0: So we're going to read Acts 4, 1 through 2, and Justin will take it. And as they were speaking to the people, the priests and the captain
1: of the temple and the Sadducees came up upon them. Greatly annoyed because they were teaching the people and proclaiming in Jesus the resurrection from the dead. The message that began in Jerusalem stays the same as it flows from Jerusalem into other nations. The hope of the gospel is in Jesus that we participate in the resurrection of the dead. The gospel begins and ends in Jerusalem. That's right. Our presentation of the gospel must match the historical pattern displayed in Acts. We do not have the right to amend the gospel for any grouping. Muslims, Hindus, your blood relatives, or even our presentation to the Jewish people. It is our job to represent the deeds and teachings of Jesus as displayed in the gospels and the clear historical record of Acts. In the case of Paul's presentation, they insulted him, referring to him as a babbler. But they were also interested to know more about what this brave man was sharing. <laughs> they liked babbling. Perhaps if we can learn to be unfazed by the occasional insult, Amen. we would see the gospel break into new areas of spiritual darkness more often. Come on. Let's examine our two groups that Paul is in discourse with. This next slide is gonna be terribly exciting and insightful for you. The Epicurean and Stoic philosophers. Athens was the home of the rival Epicurean and Stoic schools of philosophy. Let's talk about the Epicurean. Epicurus held that pleasure was the chief goal of life. With the pleasure most worth enjoying, being a life of tranquility, free from pain, free from disturbing passions, superstitious fears, and anxiety about death. That's why the resurrection caught their attention. (laughs) He did not deny the existence of the gods, but argued in deistic fashion that they, or the gods, took no interest in the lives of people. Now, Zeno was the founder of Stoicism which took its name from the Painted Stoa, i.e. the Colonnade, or Portico, where he habitually taught in the Athenian Agora. His teaching focused on living harmoniously with nature and emphasized humanity's rational abilities and individual self-sufficiency. Theologically, he was essentially pantheistic and thought of God as the world soul.
3: No.
1: Epicureanism and Stoicism represented the popular Gentile alternatives for dealing with the plight of humanity and for coming to terms with life apart from biblical revelation and God's salvific work in Jesus Christ. And they say
0: that climate change and caring for the earth is not a religion.
1: Very interesting. Yeah. So in an overly simplified sense, the Epicureans were lovers of pleasure and sought to avoid anything that was disturbing or unpleasant. The Stoics, on the other hand, were focused on living in harmony with nature, being rational and personally self-sufficient. It's a good thing that these two forms of idolatrous religion aren't around today anymore, right? Oh, yeah. Now, you can clearly see it everywhere today as in many ways our own Western culture is actually formed by these two specific streams of thought and the many related branches that stem from them. We work to avoid whatever is unpleasant by insulating ourselves and spending our time in whatever task brings us the most pleasure. Particularly as Americans, we also greatly value self-sufficiency. All of these things are leftover forms of idolatrous worship that must be put to death for us to truly be free to live in Christ Jesus. Let's read Paul's commentary
2: on our spiritual act of worship, and then we'll continue in the text. Oh, come on. This is Romans 12, starting in verse 1. I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice. Holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual uh, worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind, that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. Daily, we have the opportunity to present ourselves as living sacrifices, holy and well-pleasing to God. This church has made remarkable strides in conquering leftover idolatry and devoting yourselves to spiritual acts of worship. It is a lifelong process to be transformed and not to be conformed. Yeah. So let's move to verse 19 as the setting continues to grow darker, at the same time powerful. Yeah. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Hierophantists, where they said to him, May we know what this new teaching is that you are
5: presenting?
3: So in the sovereignty of God, Paul's open-form discussions in the Word has resulted in an invite to a very important place in the city of Athens. Wow. In many ways, the Areopagus is the seat of Gentile, beastly, the Gentile beastly power and pride in the area. We have a slide for you. On the top left-hand side, you can see the Erechtheon in pink, which is the temple to Poseidon and Athena. In the top middle, you can see the statue of Athena. On the top right, you can see the Parthenon in purple, which is a temple to Athena. On the middle right, you can see the temple to Athena, or Nike, in mint green. In the middle, you can see the Propylae in blue, which is a monumental gateway that served as the entrance to the Acropolis, With uh, which is what the whole complex is called. Now draw your attention to the image below which is a modern photo with outlines superimposed. You can see what remains today of the Acropolis on a rocky outcropping in the bottom of the photo, and that is where the Areopagus would have been. Again, we are not fans of Greek culture. The reason that we are showing you this layout is to aid you in your understanding of the setting of this meeting Paul is about to have. Where he is meeting these philosophers is facing the pantheon of foreign gods, pantheon of foreign gods, that have held the people of Athens captive for centuries. Wow! Now let's take our next slide on the proceedings that would normally take take place within the Areopagus.
0: As you got that, the meeting house is staring at idolatrous temples that are all hostile to Paul and his God. Yeah. This next slide. The Areopagus seems to be the effective government of Rome Roman Athens and its chief court. As such, like the Imperial Senate in Rome, it could interfere in any aspect of corporate life, such like education, philosophical lectures, public morality, foreign cults, which is what <laughs> they would consider Paul to be. Yeah. It could try crimes of any kind and probably have the authority to inflict capital punishment. Wow. See from her next commentary on the slide the seat of the ancient and venerable Athenian court, which decided the most solemn questions connected with religion. Hear this. Socrates was arraigned and condemned here on the charge of innovating the state religion. Wow. It received its name from the legend of the trial of Mars for the murder of the son of Neptune. The judges sat in the open air upon seats hewn out of the rock on a platform ascended by a flight of stone steps immediately from the marketplace. A temple of Mars was on the brow of the edifice, and the sanctuary of the Furies was in a broken cleft of the rock immediately below the judge's seats. The Acropolis rose above it with Parthenon and the colossal statue of Athena. It was a scene with which the dread recollections of centuries were associated. Wow. Mm. Those who withdrew to the Orophagus from the Agora came, as it were, into the presence of a higher power. Oh, wow. No place in Athens was so suitable for a discourse upon the mysteries of religion. Wow. Look, while you're contemplating the gravity of the situation that is about to unfold in the era gifts, take a moment to remember that Paul is likely alone, and he is definitely without Silas and Timothy. Yeah. Let's begin to build the setting and our minds together. Athens... <laughs> was made famous because of its association with the third Gentile beastly empire that promoted its teachings and its culture. It was renowned as the intellectual and cultural center of the world. The Oropagus is facing the pantheon of hostile foreign gods in the Acropolis. Now, with the Oropagus itself, the council members had the authority to kill a man. The council in the Oropagus had a history of killing men when they were found to be innovating the existing state religion. Lastly, the Oropagus is believed to be a place where one comes into the presence of a high-ranking spiritual power. Mm -hmm. To be clear, this is a daunting task. Yet, as you will see demonstrated in the actions and teachings of Paul, the man who has the spirit of Jesus in him well, he's always the majority in the audience. Oh. Oh. Yeah. Yeah. Paul cannot be put at a disadvantage in any
4: situation yeah. right. because it is Jesus within him who is
0: fulfilling the Great Commission. Yeah. Yeah. So, our next few verses are going to lead up to a climactic clash between the power of the kingdom of God and the power of darkness. Yeah. Let's continue, brother. You are bringing
5: some strange ideas to our ears, <laughs> and we want to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood, in the meeting of the Areopagus, and said, Men of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. Now, if you worship as something unknown, I am going to proclaim to you, come on, So clearly it's not Paul who is a babbler, but instead it is the university
1: culture that likes to endlessly talk about useless ideologies. They love their Twitter accounts. Despite the fact that this is a familiar passage, we are just jaw dropped and inspired by Paul's boldness here. When you engage with the setting, it looks like all the powers of this dark world are stacked against him, and despite this, He begins to courageously address them. In this format, it would be impossible to cover the whole background of the altar to an unknown God. And you can revisit your Acts class session on missions, as well as the book of Eternity in Their Hearts by Don Richardson for a more in-depth explanation. However, we do intend to give you some of the basic story that led up to Paul's utilizing this altar in his presentation. So, the story begins with a poet, a philosopher, a religious prophet named Epimenides. Let me try that again. Epimenides! Yeah. Who lived around 600 BC. He was a contemporary of more famous philosophers like Aristotle and Plato, who you guys know who also refer to him in their writings. Athens was the subject of a terrible plague, and the city elders were at a loss to know how to abate it. They believed the city was under a curse because they were guilty of treachery against the followers of Siloam who were slain after they had been promised an amnesty. They had tried sacrificial offerings, but to no avail. Turning... To the oracle for wisdom, yeah. the priestess said there was another god who remained unappeased for their treachery. Uh-huh. Who was this unknown god? The priestess did not know, but advised that they should send a ship to the island of Crete and fetch a man called Epimenides, yeah. who would know how to appease this offended god. Oh
2: wow! wow. Moving on to the story. As you're aware now, Athens was already known as the City of Philosophers. But what amazed Epimenides, as he arrived in Athens from Piraeus, was that the approach road was lined with images of many, many gods. Wow! Gods in the hundreds, collected from theologies of people surrounding them. Epimenides postulated that indeed, there must still be a God unknown to them, great enough and good enough to do something about the plague if they invoked his help. But the elders questioned, how could they call upon a God whose name is unknown? Epimenides responded, any God good and great enough to do something about the plague is probably also great and good enough to smile on their ignorance if they acknowledged their ignorance and called upon him. Amen.
3: Epimenides advised the elders to seek a sign from the unknown God. He told them to graze a flock of healthy sheep of different colors, some white, some black, on the grassy slope of Mars Hill. He then prayed something like this. Look at our slide. The prayer of Epimenides. O thou unknown God, behold the plague afflicting the city. And if indeed you feel compassion to forgive and help us, behold The flock of sheep. Reveal your willingness to respond, I plead, by causing any sheep that pleases you to lie upon the grass instead of grazing. Choose white if white pleases, black if black delights, and those you choose we sacrifice to you, acknowledging our pitiful ignorance of your name.
0: Although it was early in the morning when the sheep were at their hundreds, and therefore unlikely to stop grazing. Before long, some sheep settled down to rest, and these were separated from the remainder of the flock for the sacrificial offering. Epimendes ordered stones to be constructed into altars on each animal's resting place. On each of the following instructions and altars, they inscribed the words Agnostos Theo, meaning to an unknown God. Within a week, the Athenians, stricken by the plague, recovered. Wow! Wow. St. Paul must have identified with the stories he entered Athens and saw the vast array of deities, knowing that the one true God still evaded the Athenian consciousness. He begins his discourse by drawing their attention to the fact that in their own history, there was a God unknown to them, greater than anything they had currently worshipped. Now that he's established the fact there's something they don't know about, he's going to continue and expound on this in verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it
5: is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything because he himself gives all men life and breath and everything else. From one man, he made every nation of men that they should inhabit the whole earth. And he determined the set times for them and the exact places where they should live. Come on. So Paul,
1: after establishing that the Athenians in their own history were aware of a God greater than any that they knew by name, Paul immediately picks up in the context and the content of Genesis with the God who created all mankind and ordered our Ooh, existence. Come on, Which brings us to our first slide. In Paul's discourse, where does he start? Creation. Creation. In contrast to the Greek pantheon of gods, of which each represented a part of creation, like the sky, water, women, harvest, music, etc., Paul makes it clear that it is Adonai who created all things. Then, while standing by the temples in the Acropolis as his backdrop, Paul begins to use the language of Isaiah. Listen to Isaiah 66, verse 1. Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. What is the house that you would build for me? And what is the place of my rest? Paul does not directly quote the chapter and verse as it would not have a great deal of meaning to this unreached people group of men at present. But he clearly is working through Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim as he presents the gospel. In addition to co-opting the language of Isaiah, Paul is also using the language of Stephen and the language of Solomon. You'll remember from our previous sessions that Paul seems to often reflect on Stephen's words, almost as if he was remembering in this moment that Stephen was unable to be in Athens. Because of Paul's own actions. Wow. So he must do it instead. Come on! Come on. Wow. Let's read an excerpt from Stephen's sermon in
2: Acts 7 47. Oh, yeah. But it was Solomon who built a house for him. <laughs> Yet the Most High does not dwell in houses made by hands, as the prophet what? says Heaven is my throne and the earth is my footstool. Oh, wow. What kind of house will you build for me, says the Lord? Or, what is the place of my rest? Come on, Did not God. my hands make all these things? Come on. Oh, wow. The layering of concepts in Paul's discourse is as intricate as it is beautiful.
0: Yeah.
2: Far from dumping down the gospel, he has skillfully weaved the themes of the Torah from Genesis, the Nevi'im from Isaiah, and the Ketuvim with Solomon and even the words of Stephen in it. Come on. We are going to continue in our verses because we are short on time, but we will shoot all. Strive to be as intimately familiar with the narrative of the Bible. Yes. Let's move to verse twenty-seven.
5: God did this so that men would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from each one of us. For in him we live and
3: move and have our name. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Paul will again utilize the historical writings of poets that the Athenians were familiar with to emphasize that they have a need for further revelation. We have a slide that will help you with this. Poems cited by Paul. Come on. In support of this teaching about the nature and condition of humans, Paul quotes two maxims from the Greek poets. The first comes from a quatrain attributed to the Cretan poet Epimenides, which appeared first in his poem, Kratika, and is put on the lips of Minos, Zeus' son, in honor of his father. This is how it reads. They fashioned a tomb for thee, O holy and high. The Cretans, always liars, evil beasts, mm-hmm. idle bellies. But thou art not dead. Thou livest and abidest forever. For in thee we live and move and have our being. Come on. The second is from the uh, Cilician poet Aratus. It is with Zeus that every one of us in every way has to do for we are also his offspring. Come on. So Paul's upbringing as a diaspora Jew is an advantage in that he's familiar with much of the classical literature that the Athenians would value. In this setting, we will not cover the Epimenides Paradox, but you should know that much discussion surrounds these poets in the Athenian culture. Paul's main point in quoting these authors is that the Athenians in some way already know that there is a supreme God... And that all men are accountable to because they owe their existence to Him. In the next few verses, you will see Paul capitalize on this and call them to biblical repentance. As
0: we prepare to jump into verse 29, I thought we wouldn't have time to cover that, but Menendez paradox. But essentially, he is a Cretan, and he wrote, All Cretans are liars, evil beasts, idle bellies. So is he lying when he wrote the poem... Or is he lying because he's a Cretan? It's difficult. The idea behind the paradox is that they're quoting literature, considering the man's words whom they believe to be truthful, but he is a Cretan, and he's saying that all Cretans are liars. Look, the point we're trying to get to constantly here is that Paul is quoting these poets to the end of showing them you already know there's something more, and yet you're desperately missing revelation, And the wisest among you can see that you're missing revelation. So you pick up in 29, he's going to declare clearly what they must do. Therefore, since we are
5: God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by man's design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. All
0: people everywhere To repent. Paul has now drawn a clear contrast between the living God in whose image we are formed and the idols of perishable materials that are all around their city. Furthermore, he informs them that in the past, in his mercy, he's overlooked their sin by healing them of a plague, for instance, which was in his train of thought. Mm -hmm. But God is now requiring repentance from them to continue in his mercy. This brings us to our next slide. You'll see in Paul's discourse, we've gone over the creation. Now we've gone over the fall. And he's boldly declaring, you are fallen and in need of repentance. Look, you may be catching on to a method of presentation. done people groups that you learned about in Acts class. Oh, yeah. Paul is masterfully displaying how to bridge the themes of the Torah, Nevi'im, and Ketuvim into the understanding of a pagan people. The last thing that we want to examine before moving on is that Paul affirms the fact
2: that the men of all nations
0: are God's offspring and under his dominion. Paul's essentially informing them of the kingship and kingdom of Jesus that they have an obligation to, although they were unaware of it up to this point. We're going to work through the law, the prophets, and the writings on the subject of Adonai's dominion over and concerned for all nations as his offspring. Then we will proceed in our text. So let's take a look at Exodus 19, 4 through 6. This is the backdrop of
1: why Paul's doing what he's doing. In the Torah, it clearly presents that God is concerned for all nations. In verse 4, he says, You yourselves, speaking to the Israelites, have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. The gospel is Israel-centric, and it is Israel-dependent by nature. Israel is destined to act as a nation of priests representing God to the nations and reconciling them back to Him. In many ways, Paul, Silas, and Timothy are excellent examples of Jewish men performing this priestly function. Oh, yeah. The bottom line, though, is that all nations, say all nations? All nations. All nations, whether they recognize it or not, They belong to the God of Israel. They owe their existence to to him. He created them. They belong to the God of Israel. And we're going to move to the prophets where you will see that clearly. We're going to take Haggai chapter 2 verse 6. This is what the Lord Almighty says. In a little while, I will once more shake the heavens and the earth, the sea and the dry land. I will shake all nations. And the desired of all nations will come. Come on. And I will fill this house with glory, yeah. says the Lord Almighty. Amen. All nations are destined for a shaking, and in a manner of speaking, that shaking has already begun for the nation of Athens upon Paul's arrival. Additionally, Haggai connects the nations returning to God as a part of his house being filled with glory. This is because the nations are also the inheritance of Adonai. Israel is the priestly bearer of his word. And we have come in because we believe and acted upon that message.
2: We're going to take our next passage from the writings. Psalms 82, starting in verse 1. A Psalm of Asa. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods... He holds judgment, think Pantheon, think Acropolis. How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Selah. Give justice to the weak and the fearless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They They have neither knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are shaken. I said, you are God, Son of the Most High, all of you. Nevertheless, like men, you shall die and fall like any prince. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for you shall inherit all the nations. Yes. The writings declare that Jehovah will charge the principalities like the one over Athens with error and in the end inherit all the nations because they are His. To possess, yes. yeah. Israel is his one chosen nation to represent his character to the nations of the world, but in the end, he will have the nations as his own personal possession. Oh. Yeah. We are going to do one more, because it's too good to pass, and it comes from the New Testament. Alright, Colossians 1, 16. Yeah. For by him
3: all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible. Whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him and for For him. him. It just so happens that Paul wrote Colossians. And it is likely that his experience in advancing the kingdom of God in pagan environments inspired him to write all things. All things were created by him and for for him. him. There is nothing that is not under Adonai's dominion and all things that are currently out of order will be put in order as his kingdom envelops the earth. Yeah. Amen. The Gospels and the book of Revelation clearly forecast this, and we're moved by the example in Acts to do our part to make sure that that comes about. Come on. Let's pick out then 31. For well, he has set a day when he will judge
5: the world with justice by, by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to all men
0: by raising him from the dead. Yeah. Huh. Paul does not shy away from telling them about the central hope of the gospel as it was preached originally in Jerusalem. He boldly declares that the resurrection of the dead is the proof that Jesus is the judge of all men. Paul makes it clear that Jesus is the only way to find redemption. So let's take our next slide together. Paul's discourse has covered creation, he's covered fall, and he has covered redemption. We're nearing the end of Paul's discourse here. And you can see how he's driving this toward the critical issue. The Athenians don't mind long discussions about useless ideology. But if Jesus really is the appointed judge, then action is required of them in response to his message and not just mere talk. So while you're contemplating the redemption that is only found in Jesus as the judge, let's take a familiar passage and follow through with the Apostle John's thought in John 3. You will find that Paul's implication is in perfect agreement with it. John Hmm. 3.16-21
1: For God so loved the world, the cosmos, that he gave his only Son, and whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. For God did not send his Son into the world to condemn the world, but in order that the world might be saved through him. Wait, Jessica. I thought that's where the passage ended. <laughs> uh, that's where it ends at the baseball games that we've all been to. <laughs> but it continues. Whoever believes in him is not condemned. Amen. But whoever does not believe is condemned already. Already. Because he has not believed in the name of the only Son of God. And this is the judgment, the verdict that light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil Mm. for everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come into the light lest his works should be exposed. But whoever does what is true comes to the light so that it may be clearly seen that his works have been carried out in God. The Athenians are getting the message. That they are condemned already. Yeah. And a turn toward the light is required. Amen. Do you see how bold that is in their circumstance? Yeah. Yeah. Next, Paul will go on to tell them about the restoration that can and will be found in Jesus the Messiah. Namely, the
5: resurrection of the dead. Oh, amen. Come on. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, yeah. some of them sneered. But others say, we want to hear you again on this subject. Guys, we're talking about the
1: resurrection of the dead. The one that will only occur in Jesus. This is defined as the ultimate hope of the gospel. You guys know that this will be the time when all things, including our bodies and the land and creation and everything else, begin to be Fully and completely restored. Let's take our next slide. You knew what was coming here. Yeah. Paul's discourse. Creation first. Then fall. Then redemption. And finally, the restoration of all things. After Paul does this. After he goes through and he preaches these concepts. Now, the Athenians have a cha- have a choice before them. They've got a choice to either run to the great king of Israel as their very hope, or they have a choice to reject the message in an attempt to soothe their stricken consciences and get back to just speaking with one another instead of bringing their sin into the light and doing something
5: righteous about it. Mm -hmm. Let's continue in 33. At that, Paul left the council. A few men became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysius, a member of the Oropagus, also a
2: woman named Demaris, and a number of others. We have a slide for you. Those who believed in Athens. Luke was very careful to include all who believed in these three cities. Nice. In Athens, a few men became followers of Paul and believed. Dionysius, a member of the Orophages, believed. A woman named Demaris believed, and yeah. a number of others also believed. So together, we have journeyed through Thessalonica, Berea, and finally Athens. Fruitful ministry occurred in each area. Powers of darkness were conquered by Jesus in the people of ministry, oh, and the kingdom of God has advanced at every turn. Amen. Yeah. You should know that church history, that is, Eusebius, records that Dionysius, the Rappagei, became a leader in the community of believers. Come on. In our times of building and advancing, we endeavor to emulate the example that the one church in Acts displays. Yeah. Pastor?
4: To travel through three incredible cities here and hear what was wrought by these men of God. Thessalonica, then on to Berea, then to Athens. I want to end our time tonight here in the last few minutes that we have together in 1 Thessalonians. A city and the ministry that was started right here at the beginning of this chapter. So even as you're turning there now with us together, who wrote the book of 1 Thessalonians? Paul. And Silas and Timothy. Yeah. So who wrote the book of First and Second Thessalonians? Oh, Paul, Silas, and Timothy. Yeah, you're already getting something good, aren't you? <laughs> yeah. These men who were there and saw a ministry begin in their time. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2. We're going to read the first two verses together. For you yourselves know, brothers, that our coming to you was not in vain. But though we had already suffered and been shamefully treated at Philippi... As you know, we had boldness in our God to declare to you the gospel of God in the midst of much conflict. Part of what I want to encourage you with tonight is that Paul and Silas and Timothy ministering as a team here in this were bold enough to bring the gospel, not part of the gospel not a little bit of it, and easing their, their crowds into it. They presented to them the fullness of the gospel with great boldness. Somebody say with great boldness.
2: With, with great boldness. boldness.
4: I want to encourage you men and you women here in this house, do not ever present a partial gospel because it's not worth anything. Come on, Present the gospel. The more adversity you see, the more that should testify to you that what you have is real and that it must be presented in its entirety. Come Amen. On. Did you guys hear the idolatrous drums that were going on during our sermon? The- yes, I
3: did.
4: did you notice that while we're talking about the idolatry of the Athenians, the drums were droning on behind us? in an idolatrous way to practice to a foreign God? It should have alivened something inside of you. I was like, oh wow, what a perfect homiletic here that it has become normal in our day and time to hear the drone of the drums of idolatry. But it is our great opportunity to stand together as men and women of God and present the full gospel. Look at 1 Thessalonians 2, verse 13. And we also thank God constantly for this, that when you received the word of God, like the whole thing, you do realize that 1 and 2 Thessalonians are some of the most eschatological writings in the New Testament. They didn't wait until the people got far along in the journey. This is early in their journey. One of the first letters that Paul writes is to the Thessalonians. He doesn't wait to teach them about the end times. He's getting after the fullness of the gospel, preaching in Christ the resurrection of the dead. Going after the real gospel right when you get a hold of somebody, when God presents you an opportunity. Go after the whole thing. Don't be weak. Don't be shy. Don't be timid. You have the gospel. Look at how this letter ends in 1 Thessalonians 5. Man, incredible instruction, but let's go to verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely as you battle the idolatry of your day, as you battle the idleness of your day, as you battle the fear, as you battle those things, God is able to sanctify you completely. May your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. Do you know why? Because verse 24. Yeah. He who calls you is faithful. Amen. He will surely Amen. do it. Amen. We're going to see this in city after city after city. You're going to see this in region of the world. Not only just our brothers who are going to go as the lead team to do it there, this is what they're going to do. Praise God. I'm already proud of them. They haven't gotten there yet. But what about those of us who are staying here? This is the same model that we get to do right here where we are. Right here where God has planted you. That we stand with boldness and we actually present the gospel. Stand with us today, together. Mighty God, we love you. We thank you for the power of your word. We exalt your word in this house tonight. Lord, that you would cause us to be stirred in our soul about the idolatry that's around us because we have the answer. Lead your people, God. Strengthen your people even as they go forth and present the fullness of your gospel. Starting with creation, working through the fall, finding the redemption that's necessary, and the restoration that you have made available to all men, to all nations, because you are the God of all. Lord, we stand, Lord, and we want our lives to be reflected, a reflection of what we've seen in Acts 17 tonight. May you be glorified in this body that is your body, Lord, as we work together to bring your kingdom here on the earth.